both a testimony of what God has done in my life, but also using that testimony as a catalyst into a challenge that I would like to give to each and every one of you. I want what I have to say not to point to me, but to point to Christ. Let me begin by saying that the sojourn that I embarked upon a number of years ago initially led me into the whole field of secular psychology and even Christian psychology, which in many ways are very much one and the same. I formed an organization called Equipping Ministries. I worked primarily with highly visible Christian executives, Christian artists, especially in the Nashville area. We have a lot of artists there, meaning musicians. And um, God really blessed that practice in terms of all of the people that came. And yet in the midst of that, I was struggling with some issues in my heart, and I wasn't really sure what to do with them. Uh, I was pursuing a a doctorate in counseling psychology, and after about five years in the midst of that ministry and all of the, the, uh, the counseling and all of the doctoral studies, God began to confront me with some very sobering truths. I didn't really want to admit some of the things that I'm about to, I'm about to tell you, but nevertheless, I think, it, I think it's important for you to know. First of all, I began to notice even in the midst of all of my external religiosity and all of my ministry, I began to notice that my heart had really grown cold and indifferent to the local church. I even began to notice that I felt somewhat hostile towards the local church, blaming them at some level for the profound failure that I perceived that they had, had done because the people that were coming to me were all church members but for whatever reason, they were confused, they had no answers, and they were making my life very, very dark. Because here I was, interfacing with approximately 70 people per week, which is crazy, between small groups and one-on-one -on -one counseling. And as I say, my world became rather dark, and I became very frustrated with life, with my own spiritual life, and certainly with the church. Not only did I notice that, that I was growing cold and somewhat hostile towards the church, I began to realize that I had unwittingly replaced the Bible with clever psychological jargon. My language had become psychology. Words such as iniquity had been replaced with addiction. Words such as rebellion were replaced with dysfunctional. Words such as repentance were replaced with recovery. I openly scoffed at those who couldn't see the difference between psychological problems and spiritual problems. They seemed rather obvious to me. I even subtly scoffed at the basic disciplines of the faith. Prayer, meditation, Bible study, scripture memory, those types of things. All the clever theories about unmet needs seemed to be the pathway to change. And after all, in order to really understand who you are, you have to study yourself. And the focus became on self, not on God. A simple devotion to Christ, to me, seemed virtually impossible unless you could uncover those hidden motivational structures and really give the insight to the people to which you were working so that they could understand what was going on in their life and somehow find Christ through all of that. Christ and his word 
when the Spirit of God seemed to be insufficient. The enormity of my sin was shrouded by the perceived success that I was experiencing. People wanted to come see me. They wanted me to come speak at their banquets and their seminars and at their churches. The phone rang off the wall for people to come in for counseling. And yet, down deep, I realized that, first of all, my clients were really only making superficial change. They would exchange one symptom for another. Temporary victories were all that I really saw. They were addicted to the never-ending pursuit of insight, which they could only gain from the great master counselor, namely me. And worse yet, I realized that they were becoming like me. And that's the tragedy of it all. People who were indifferent to the church, angry with the church, consumed with theory and jargon, undisciplined spiritually, haughty, proud, arrogant, and consumed with finding themselves. In the context of all of that, God in his infinite grace and in his mercy began to convict me. And I cannot tell you one particular thing that occurred that caused the light bulb to come on. I did not all of a sudden pick up a J. Adams book and say, wow, there it is. I did not go to some seminar. I didn't even go to therapy. After all, I wouldn't trust therapists because I figured they were probably just like me, somewhat of a hypocrite. So for whatever reason, I began to just go back to the basics, the things that I learned as a young child and as a young man in Sunday school. And that was to begin to pray and to study the word and to hear people really preach the word. In my heart, I felt like I needed a great awakening. And I do remember saying, you know, God, that's really what I need. I need a great awakening. So why don't I read some of the people that, that lived and preached back during the time of the Great Awakening. So I began to read books by Edwards and Whitfield. I read Spurgeon. That led me into the Puritans. I read Owen and Watson and Bunyan and Baxter. And I started listening a whole lot more to this guy named John MacArthur, this great expositor. And I began getting his tapes and reading his books. And God, little by little, through the power of his word, began to convict me ever more deeply about my own sin. One thing I do remember as I began to have a hunger for God, a hunger for God's Word, a hunger to somehow commune with Him in ways that I had not previously experienced, at least since I was a young child and a young man. So I got back to the basics. And it was during the context of that that I was asked to go speak to GMA Week which is when the Gospel Music Association meets. And they always meet there in Nashville, Tennessee. And I was working with uh, uh, a number of the artists, many of them you would know. I worked a lot with a lot of the executives from the Christian record labels. And, and so they would ask me to come speak. And I think they were in for a bit of a surprise because this time when I came to speak, I began speaking with a sense of authority that I think I had not had heretofore. And I remember talking with them about Romans 12, too, and how that the world had begun to mold them into its, into its philosophies and ideologies. And that was manifested in the very artists that came in to the hotel lobby 
Frankly, it looked like a transvestite convention. All of the glow-in-the-night pants and all of the hair going everywhere and all of the earrings and the makeup on men. And worse yet, I knew the travesty of the lives of many of those people, many of the band members, and many of the executives even in the, in the Christian recording industry. And I began to share with them my heart how that now we had stooped to a new level of immorality with our lyrics, with all of our emotionalism, with our materialism. One artist could be, um, could be reprimanded in a label for his immorality. He might even be dismissed. And before the day was over, another label would pick him up. Why? Because he sold records or she sold records. I confronted them about lyrics, about the genre of the music. They didn't ask me back next year. Some of them came up and shared with me how the things that I had said had really impacted them. But for the most part, I felt very much ostracized. And I think that was good. I think God used that in my heart to confirm for me that the direction that he was leading me was in fact the direction that I needed to go. And it was in the context of all of that that I, that I decided that I was going to stop my pursuit of a doctorate in counseling psychology. I was right close to the edge there where you, where you do your dissertation and you do all of your uh, testing in order to be licensed by the authorities and be credentialed as someone who really has the answers. And I decided to stop that and I transferred to another organization and in and, and another institution and I began preaching and teaching and obviously there's many things I could tell you in regards to that and I don't want to bore you with that but all that to say that God did a work in my heart and he changed me in a radical way and I want to share with you I think two of the primary reasons that this happened in my life and allow these reasons to be the catalyst to a challenge that I would like to leave with you and this might also be the answer to uh, the question that many people asked me back in Tennessee when, when they heard that I was going to be moving to California. They said, my goodness, son, have you lost your mind? <laughs> You're moving to Los Angeles? All the crime and the earthquakes and the smog and everybody lives on top of one another. There ain't no yards. I heard everything. And I felt at some level I had to defend myself but really what I said is, yes, I, I feel God has led me there. And here are the two reasons. Number one, the number reason, number one reason why I feel God has led me to this institution is that I believe with all my heart that one of the greatest enemies of the evangelical church today is the overwhelming influence of the false religion of secular psychology. As all heresies, it has major elements of truth. As all good counterfeits, it looks real and it looks good at a distance. As all satanic lies, its doctrines are difficult to define and consequently hard for the undiscerning to refute. As all false doctrines and doctrines of demons, its emissaries often appear as angels of light, misleading oftentimes well-meaning Christian people into error and certainly appealing to the insatiable appetites of the lust of our eyes and our flesh and the boastful pride of life. 
It advocates for the most part, or its advocates for the most part, have become masters of eisegesis, capable of prostituting every hermeneutical principle in order to somehow support a theory or somehow support some invented label, which, by the way, can only be understood by the professional. Not only do I believe that secular psychology has had a tremendous negative influence on the church, but also I believe that the church has lost its ability to discern truth and sound doctrine, as I had. No longer does the church, for the most part, have the conviction that our resources are in the Lord Jesus Christ and in his word. The church has lost its conviction, for the most part, that scripture alone is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. They've forgotten that only the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We've forgotten that it is his divine power that has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness. And men and women, I can tell you after counseling with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people, the only thing that has ever changed anybody in a substantial way is the word of God and how it impacts their hearts and moves them towards brokenness and repentance. I had somehow lost, as I believe the church had, the whole idea that the clear teaching and understanding of the transforming word of God is the only conduit capable of transmitting truth to man's rebellious heart. Psychological theory cannot do that. I've seen that firsthand. Psychological jargon cannot do that. Clear insight cannot do that. If you don't think the church is undiscerning, let me give you a couple of examples. You've heard of the tremendous movement now of laughing in the spirit. You've seen that on television. Utterly bizarre. And now they've moved to another extreme that maybe you've heard of. It's called roaring in the spirit where people get down and they roar and they bark like dogs, claiming that this is a manifestation of the Spirit of God in their life. And now, believe it or not, they have moved to even another level, and that is now called vomiting in the Spirit. Absolutely incomprehensible. How has the church ever gotten to this point? And you say, well, that's rather bizarre. Uh, how does that really apply to psychology? I mean, certainly some of the psychological things that are taught in the church are not that bizarre. Well, you may be right at some level, but let me give you an example in terms of an undiscerning church in regards to what's going on in the Christian psychological community. In one of the, in one of the more uh, well-received magazines that is put out by a very, very prominent association for Christian counseling. They have a number of ads in there. Let me just read you what these ads are talking about. Here's one. It talks about innovative counseling trends, innovative counseling for future trends. Come to our workshop. And in this workshop, 
you will experience groundbreaking things such as how to size up a client's personality, their relationships and problems in a first session, how to integrate personality disorders with compass of the self to simplify DSM-3R, which is the coding system that you use as a, as a psychologist for billing purposes, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders. Here's how you can learn how to diagnose people in the proper category so that you can get the appropriate payment. And by the way, people, I don't have time to expand upon this, but if you want to know what's really driving secular psychology in the church, it's the almighty dollar. They go on. Here's how to learn how to assess severity and plan effective intervention using a compass model. Use 12 practical techniques for dealing with cognitive, emotional, physical, and spiritual aspects of counseling that will bring a new life to your sessions. Discover four secrets to survive being a counselor. Utilize a model that integrates the four aspects of human nature. All right, catch this. The four aspects of human nature. That's real biblical. The mind, the heart, the body, and the spirit to get, a con to get concrete results in every session. You know, I, as I read these things, I think, boy, if only the apostles could have had this information. If only they understood these clever insights. If only they had had seminars like that. Just think how much further ahead the church would be today. And by the way, doesn't it make you a little bit angry when you think about it that God has waited almost 2,000 years to really give us the necessary insight that we need in order to truly live life effectively? Why did God wait this long to give us all of this? People, the point is, He didn't. So the church has become undiscerning. Imagine if they had ads in magazines such as this that read, how to build a Christian counseling ministry in the local church, how to practice Christ-likeness, how to produce Christ-likeness in your counselees, how to conduct church discipline. Boy, that would sell real good. How to evangelize unsaved counselees. You'll never see that in any of the literature. You know why? Because if you did that type of thing, the American Psychological Association would discredit you and you'd be open for uh, all kinds of lawsuits and you would lose your credentialing and therefore you would lose the money that would typically come to you from hospitals, from insurance companies, etc. Now, how did we ever get into this mess? How in the world did we ever get this way? And I want to answer that by saying the church got this way, I believe, the same way that I got, the way that I got. And that is, we left our first love. I began to realize that I didn't really love the one that I claimed to serve. And I would venture to say that there's a number of you in here today that could echo that if you're brutally honest with yourself. And people, when you lose your love for Christ, you'll fall in love with the world. God gives us a very clear example of what happens to the Christian when this happens in the book of Revelation. And I would like for you to turn there and let's spend a few moments there in Revelation chapter 2. 
I want to touch on a few things here in the moments that we have remaining. Revelation chapter 2, the apocalypse is Jesu Christu, the unveiling or the revealing of Jesus Christ. As you will recall in the Gospels, you see Christ in his humiliation, and now in the book of Revelation, you see Christ in his exaltation. And in the beginning of this great book, we are introduced to seven churches, beginning in chapter 2 and going through chapter 3. Now, let me just give you a bit of a background so that I can tie this together for you. These seven churches were actually real historical churches on a postal route. And so when John wrote this, these letters went around to these various churches. And these churches have a, have a wonderful way of exhibiting to us some of the unique characteristics that occur in a church and in the Christian life, especially if we look at it in the context of a progressive degeneration that begins when we leave our first love for Christ. And that's what we see here beginning with the church of Ephesus. Chapter 2, verse 1, it says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, that you cannot endure evil men, and you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake, and I have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Now let me give you the background very quickly. The church at Ephesus was planted in a very unique place. Paul founded this church about 40 years prior to the writing of this letter. Ephesus was a place of tremendous wickedness. It had the temple of Diana there, which was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. And in that temple and in that city, they had indescribable types of orgies. They had temple prostitutes. They had all the singers and the dancers that were associated with this hideous idol of Diana, which was this huge, ugly black cow with large paps. And so in the midst of all of this, you've got wicked sadomasochism that occurred there. Shameless debauchery. Sexual mutilation. Frankly, it was the MTV environment, if you want to think of it that way. And even worse. And think about it. In the midst of all this debauchery, in the midst of all of this sin, God comes along and he plants a what? He plants a Christian treatment center for the sexually addicted. No, men and women, he planted a church. You see, dear friends, it is only the church of Jesus Christ which God has instituted and empowered to be the sanctifying agent in a wicked world. Paul told Timothy that, it is the, ch that the church is of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. And so God looks at this church at Ephesus and he says, I know your deeds, I know how you toil, you persevere, you don't tolerate sin. It's like you've got all your externals in place. Everything looks good on the outside. But I know your heart and I look inside and you know what? This is what I have against you. You've left your first love. It literally means to forsake. 
Dear friends, do you remember the first time you fell in love with Christ? When you repented of your sins and you felt His love and His forgiveness? That's what you have to go back to. Or when you lead someone to Christ, I remember right before we moved here, there was a, a young man that came forward on a Sunday morning. You see, I have a Southern Baptist church, or at least kind of a Southern Baptist church, and they still want us to have invitations. And at the end of that particular service, this young man came forward, and it took him five minutes before he could speak. He was under such conviction. The tears were coming down his eyes, and he was holding his chest, and he was trying to say something and he couldn't get it out for five minutes and finally what came out is that he he was saying that God had convicted him of his sin and he wanted to be forgiven and soon thereafter I saw that trembling occur again when we went to the creek for the baptism you see we do things a little bit differently back in Tennessee we go to the creek for the baptism Matter of fact, you have to get there early. I, I did. I, I get there early so that I can go out into the water and kind of shake some of the branches around and make sure there's no snakes. I mean, it's really, it's really disconcerting when you're trying to baptize somebody and all of a sudden a cottonmouth comes wobbling along and then you have the people in the congregation sitting up on the bank throwing rocks at it. It's really difficult in the midst of a baptismal service. So you want to make sure you get there ahead of time and scare out all the snakes. But anyway, my point is, even when he came into the water, he was trembling. And he said to me, I can't believe how much Jesus loves me. That's what it means to love Christ. People, may I challenge you to recapture your first love. Imagine what it would be like being in a marriage where you say, Honey, I'll tell you what, um, I don't love you anymore, first of all, but everything's going to continue on as it was before. And frankly, that's how many of us live in the church. Well, time will not permit me to take you through all of these churches, but let me say that there were two churches that God did not condemn, the church at Smyrna and the church at Philadelphia. But what you see is that the church at Ephesus was one that he condemned because they had become apathetic. And then as you study the text, you see that the church at Pergamum was a church that was a compromising church. They compromised... Matter of fact, Pergamum was a place where they worshipped Asclepius, the snake god, savior god of healing. They would lie in the temple, allow the snakes to crawl over them. That was the home place of Hippocrates. You've heard of him. As a matter of fact, that's where we get our medical symbol today, the snake that's wrapped around the pole. It was the place of healing. As a matter of fact, in Pergamum, they had a medical school that combined superstition and religion and all this holistic thinking. People, integration of psychology and Christianity is nothing new. So Pergamum was condemned for being a compromising church. And that's the next thing that happens. When you lose your love for Christ, you begin to compromise. And then if you study the text, you see that the next church on the route was Thyatira. Not only did they compromise, but they also literally tolerated sin. It isn't that what happens? You don't love Christ anymore. You've got all your externals in place. And then little by little, you begin to compromise on things. And then after a while, you'll rationalize to a point where you not just compromise, you just tolerate sin. And then the church at Sardis became a dead social club. That was the next church. And then finally, the church at Laodicea was literally the church that made Christ sick. He said, I just want to spit you out of my mouth. Cold, indifferent, self-righteous. That's the progression 
Dear friends, let me ask you, does your heart leap with joy when you hear the words of the lover of your soul? If it doesn't, you don't love Christ. Is your heart stirred when you hear the great hymns of the faith? If it doesn't, you probably don't love Christ. In conclusion, and maybe at another time I can expand upon this, but let me, let me give you three things very, very quickly that I think are very, very important for you to remember and to keep in mind in order to protect you from losing your first love and forsaking Christ. Number one, be suspicious of your own spirituality. Be suspicious of your own spirituality. As the psalmist said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Don't buy your own press. Don't get deceived by your own religious externals. People, you'll never be amazed at His grace until you're amazed at your sin. Number two, expose your heart to the words of the one who loves you. Expose your heart to the words of the one who loves you. Remember that it is His divine power. And to us all things pertaining to life and godliness through what? A true knowledge of Him. How do you get a true knowledge of Him? Through His Word. And then finally, live in anticipation of His return. People, the King is coming back. That should thrill your heart. A friend of mine told me of some people in his town who worked with some retarded folks in an institution. They were Christian people that were trying to communicate the gospel as effectively as they possibly could to these dear people. And they told them a lot about how much Jesus loved them and how important it is to love Him. And they also told them that He's coming back someday. You know what the biggest maintenance problem was in that facility? They couldn't keep the windows clean. You know why? Because all of those dear people constantly had their faces pressed against the glass looking for Jesus to come. Is that how you live? If it's not, then you probably don't love Christ. And dear friends, if you don't love Christ, it's a matter of time that you will begin to proceed down that progressive degeneration. After you lose your love for Christ, you'll begin to compromise in your life. Then you'll begin to tolerate sin. Then after a while, you'll be consumed with everything of the world except the truth of God's Word. And then finally, you'll just kind of die as a Christian. And you don't want that. Let's bow our heads together. Father, I pray that you will stir our hearts with an unquenchable love for Christ. And to live in a way that, that tells the entire world that we are anticipating the coming of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the lover of our souls. 
The one who knew no sin, who was made sin for us. Oh God, may that be a passion of our hearts to know Him and to commune with Him. And Father, I just lift up each and every one of these people in this room today. And I pray that you will stir our hearts and that you will give us that excitement and that you will convict us in ways that will ultimately bring glory to you. In Jesus' name I pray, with thanksgiving and with love. Amen.